G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and this is episode three of This Week in Startups Australia. Today, we'll be speaking with Ned Moorfield of GoCatch. His startup has a 40% share of Australia's taxi drivers and is disrupting an industry that's badly needed competition. Then we'll explore the new world of digital currencies with Ronald Tucker of Bittrade, who will tell us how Bitcoin has already solved one of the biggest challenges in banking. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Fishburners, Australia's largest startup space with 90 startups working from one large building in Ultimo, including this recording studio. Fishburners is a non-profit dedicated to supporting entrepreneurs and has a pitching competition open to the public every Friday afternoon at 4.30. Find out more at fishburners.org. One of the most annoying things about Sydney is actually hailing a cab. You hail a cab, go on a website, reserve it, call the cab company up, make a booking, and yeah, sometimes the cab just doesn't come. And that's a really problem if you have a business meeting or if you're trying to catch a flight or whatever it might be. And there's no real incentive for taxi drivers to behave themselves because there's no penalty for the fact that they've just screwed you around like this. Well... My next entrepreneur has come up with a very elegant solution for that. Ned Moorfield is one of the founders of GoCatch. Ned, what is GoCatch? What does it do? Mark, it's, uh, what it is is it's a smartphone app where you get to see your taxi approaching um, after you send a booking request out. We send it to nearby drivers that have the app installed on their phones. So I launched the app and it, I see basically all the taxis that are nearby that are running the app. That's right. right. Okay, so yep. like little cars, similar in the nature to the Uber app, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, so essentially see those vehicles around you that are available. Um, we send that request out, so we dispatch the job to the driver's phone. Once they accept, you see them approaching in real time on your phone on mm-hmm. a map. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to call the driver. They can call you. So mm-hmm. it eliminates a lot of uncertainty on both sides. Um, well, if I see them veering off, I press the button. It's like, hey, where are you? Are you coming to get me? Exactly. So, um, you know, the, the, the situation that you were describing at the start where you have no idea where your taxi is, um, we get to address that in a um, very transparent way for the passenger. So people love that experience. And then also at the end of the trip, you can pay via credit card or PayPal. Um, so it's a very seamless payments experience. You get your tax invoice emailed straight to your inbox. So no messing around with swiping your card and getting a t- um, paper receipt that you have to keep track of at the end of the trip. And um, yeah, look, we've got a we've got a large pool of drivers. We're about forty percent of thirty thousand drivers that are um, registered nationally. Forty percent of taxi drivers in Australia. So we have a very big footprint in each major capital city in Australia. Wow. So so chances are, no matter where I go, I'm going to find a taxi driver who's using GoCatch. That's right. In any of the major capital cities, you'll see that there's a good base of drivers. Uh, so it allows you, know, you to move between cities if you're traveling for work, um, et cetera, then uh, you know, there's only one app that you need to be using. Right. That's something that uh, hasn't been the case previously in Australia. So that, that's, uh, um, that's right, a Right, because each of the taxi companies kind of have an app now, most of which are not incredibly well designed and really don't give you a very satisfying experience as a user of these apps. But GoCatch sort of crosses all of those boundaries, right? Yeah, there's some really important differences between us and the network apps. So um, for those that are in Sydney, like the M-Taxi app or um, right. Silver Service or One Three Cabs app in Melbourne, those apps really, they just connect through to the existing dispatch systems mm. that are in the taxi. Now, those dispatch systems have some very big problems with them. They're, they're very old clunky technology. And the way that they're built, um, you, you talked to 
earlier about the drivers not getting penalised for doing the wrong thing. It only takes one quick look in the app store at the reviews for the likes of one, three cabs, and you'll see how bad an experience people are having. So it's kind of a new skin on the same old broken system. And one thing that has amazed me actually coming into this industry, and one of the things that brought me into the industry to start with was the complete lack of focus on customer service. Um, And and the industry is not customer-centric at all. Um, And that's really been a function of the monopoly power that cab charge has in the industry and the way the industry is structured, not to be customer-focused at all, but more to be operating in the interests of the incumbents. And, you know, we think that's something that's really broken in this industry. And, you know, there's not many industries where you would walk, you think about walking into a um, into a store and the, the attendants sitting on the phone having a phone conversation the whole time you're trying to transact with them. I mean, you wouldn't tolerate it in any other industry. Um, we think the taxi industry is one that needs to be far more customer-centric, and we invest a lot of resource into um, identifying and um, following up on drivers that aren't delivering a great service. So there's there's really, in a way, there's two sides to this because there are two monopolies in the taxi business, right? There's the license monopoly that, you know, there's a license, a set number of taxi licenses in any particular area that are controlled on the state level. But then there's also a payments monopoly as well, right? Now, what for the folks who may not know, particularly the listeners in America, could you talk about cab charge and what that is and how that's developed? Yeah, so cab charge uh, came about uh, as one of the first players in Australia in processing electronic payments in the taxi industry. So Mm -hmm. they brought payments terminals, the hardware around payments terminals, into taxis. Um, now, this is going back quite a while now. It's probably uh, around 30 years ago that they brought this technology in. So around the same time, credit cards would have come in. That's right, yeah. So they were, um, they, you know, they were, they were innovators at the time. Uh, and they were able to build up uh, really a monopoly presence in Australia by having a lot of cross-ownership with the taxi networks. Um, so they were able to mandate for the owners of the vehicles that they had to install a cab charge terminal into their v- vehicle via their control, via the networks. Um, so because those ca- those taxi networks were partial owners of cab charge. That's right, yeah, yeah cross-ownership. Right. Yeah. The networks own some shares in cab charge, vice versa. Yeah. There's kickbacks as well between the networks and cab charge. Cab charge will give a rebate on the surcharge. So we have a... So we have an 11% payment surcharge in the taxi industry in Australia. We've had for a long time. That's starting to change. Um, So part of that 11% was going back to the networks to incentivise them to use the cab charge terminals. Now, um, that 11% is coming under pressure. Uh, The state governments have recognised that uh, really that's just... uh, There's there's way too much profit margin that's built into that. And so the um, regulators in Victoria and now New South Wales have legislated to cap that out at 5%, which we think is a great thing. Um, We think, again, there's just been a lack of competition to bring that... 11% down. Okay, so you have disruption in two basic areas. You're disrupting the customer service in taxes and you're disrupting the payments, which is, I think, what is it, almost a $200 million a year business for cab charge, if, if I remember. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an enormous amount. What's the When you're talking about the total size of the taxi market in Australia, what is that per year in terms of just the payments that pass through it? So in terms of the turnover um, of taxi fares, it's yeah. a $5.4 billion industry in Australia. Um, that's Australian dollars, so what are we talking about? Five billion um, US, and uh, there's about 210 million journeys that are completed each year in Australia. So it's a very, it's a, it's a very lucrative market, very large market in terms of total turnover, um, because unfortunately for us uh, travelling members, the Australian public, we pay a lot in taxi fares. Right. Um, so it translates through that that market size. Um, a lot of the size of the fares is a function of the costs that are built into the industry, particularly in relation to the plates. So tell me about what it took for. Go catch to start and get to a point now where 40% of the taxi drivers in Australia are using 
GoCatch, our, our GoCatch basically affiliates. How, how did you get there? Look, uh, to start with, there was a lot of hours spent down at the airport holding bay. Um, now, when you drive into Sydney or Melbourne Airport, you probably you might see it um, off to the side. It's a very large holding bay of taxis that um, where, that feed into the, um, the pickup area, and that's best concentration of taxis. So um, my co-founder, Andrew, and I spent many, many hours down there um, talking to drivers and recruiting them and getting them to sign up in the early stages. Was that a hard sell? Uh, no, it wasn't because what, what, how we positioned it was try it out. Uh, you know, right. if it's gonna if it works and delivers you more jobs, then you know that's great. Um, if it doesn't, well, um, they haven't really lost anything because right. it was just they can install it straight into their app. Um, you know, the trick was to get a lot of work coming through early on to really hook the drivers in, and we were able to do that as well. Uh, but yeah, we then there's a huge word of mouth effect in the industry as well. So once we started recruiting drivers at the airport, there was a lot of flow on effects with right. them. Well, because they're all sitting at the airport talking to one another, exactly. right? That's the thing. So that that pool there, if one of them sees something that's bringing in more jobs, every other taxi driver is going to go, I need that. Right? Exactly. There's a real snowball effect. Yeah. I mean, that's a great thing about a business model like this. You've get that network effect where um, more jobs that we pull in, pulls in more drivers, the, then the user experience gets better. We get people taxis faster. Right, but that's that's half of it. How did you get people like customers using the app? How did you actually get that pull in so that you could pull the uh, drivers along? I think, you know, a lot of our traffic's been organic I and mean, we've had 300,000 passengers now that have downloaded and registered. Uh, and we, we really only, we've only just touched the surface on um, in terms of marketing effort and getting our brand out there in yeah. a large way. Uh, I think it shows the power of um, when you have, when, you, when you're trying to solve a really clear problem, right. um, you know, there's a huge amount of pain out there around <laughs> people's interaction with the taxi networks. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so people are looking, are searching for a, a, an alternative and um, we were able to provide that alternative and there's been great word of mouth um, as well. People refer the app onto their friends. Um, so, you know, I think that gets back to that kind of um, old adage as well that you want to be, a, um, you want to be make sure that you're solving a really clear problem because right. I think then it makes it a whole lot easier to bring in customers. So how do the taxi companies feel about GoCatch? I mean, are they happy, sad, angry? Are you taking money out of their mouths? Are you giving a better customer experience therefore people? How do they feel? Look, they were, certainly weren't enthusiastic um, early on, and it's interesting to see how the incumbents react um, to something like this. Um, their instant reaction was the same old thing that they've done always, which is to try and protect their turf and right. lobby lobby government, lobby, lobby the regulators to... Um, to block an app? Yeah, to, to move against us. Um, look, we were operating in probably grey area in terms of legislation. It wasn't clear where we sat in terms of legislative framework. Because people could make a reservation through your app and they felt they could own that? or Yeah, you know, and there was... You the taxi networks would argue we have to be a, an accredited taxi booking service. Now, as it turns out, the Victorian and New South Wales regulators have actually modified the legislation to accommodate us. So we have a very clear <laughs> place in the legislation, which is great. So we're completely legal. And um, look, the, and so the first thing the taxi, count, taxi council and networks do is lobby state government. That didn't work because the the, the regulators actually were wanting to see competition themselves. Um, they knew there was a big problem in terms of customer service. Well, because the complaints are also floating up to them. Huge problems. I mean, in Melbourne, they had a, um, a major inquiry into the taxi industry because there's so much pain down there. I mean, we think we've got it bad in Sydney, but I think in Melbourne's even worse. Um, so that's allowed us to grow really well there. But... Um, Look, so the lobbying didn't work. Then they kind of did some scaremongering, um, saying that we're not safe. Actually, we think we're a lot safer than... Um, well, because the drivers are rated, right? So if there's a driver who's got a low rating, you wouldn't necessarily go with them for a job. So Exactly. So, And, you know, you pale a taxi on the side of the street. You don't know who that driver is. Right. They don't They don't know who you are. There's no repercussions if they don't deliver a There's no service. relationship. Yeah, so we provide that connection. So um, scaremongering was kind of a second reaction. And interestingly enough, 
they're just what would have been the best reaction I would have thought is actually to pull their socks up and deliver a better service um, and a better product. Um, that seems to be far down their list of uh, what they're looking to actually do. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Three years ago, on the first trip over to Fishburners, I met two folks who had just started a little company. That company was GoCatch. That company's grown from two guys to a $19 million company. And most of the time, GoCatch did their growing in Fishburners because it's the best environment for a startup entrepreneur in Sydney. Find out more at fishburners.org. And we're back with Ned Morfield, founder and CEO of GoCatch. So, Ned, you have just closed a $5 million funding round on a $19 million valuation. And I find out about this because it makes the front page of the AFR, Australian Financial Review, that's essentially the Wall Street Journal equivalent in Australia. Now, what would be seen, I suppose, in America as a relatively modest funding deal is huge news here because that's really, in terms of Series A-ish funding, that's an incredibly large deal. Could you tell us something about what it took to make that deal happen? Yeah, look, uh, what we've found, Mark, is that um, there is quite a bit of investment money out there um, in the in the Australian investor market uh, that we've been able to get more – we've been able to get in front of that audience um, by going through some of the brokers that would traditionally be involved in um, corporate finance or fu- sourcing funds for um, – private businesses or listed companies outside of um, the technology space. Right. So, um, and, those, and those funding mechanisms are actually quite mature in Australia. They are. They're very mature. I mean, there's a, um, you know, you, you've got a, a large pool of brokers with large, very large networks of investors um, with, you know, all kinds of varying appetites for risk. And these would be people who might actually normally invest in mining or something like that, right? Exactly. Okay. And actually, um, you know, the... The heat has come out of mark, uh, mining um, stocks, and um, there's a pretty strong correlation between people that want to invest in small mining stocks and um, and technology companies. Are probably fairly similar risk profile on those investments, um, but mining stocks are not looking anywhere near as appealing right, right now. So um, we have found that um, there's yeah an overlap between those type of investors. So you know I think. Um, there's, we're increasingly seeing Australian startups. I, I'm certainly um, have seen through um, the founders that I know um, that people are getting better access to this audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there is certainly there is there's some serious money out there for people that do want to invest in companies that they can see a really strong future for um, a business model that makes sense. You know, the Australian market is very focused on the fundamentals, um, making sure that um, you've got a strong revenue base for the business. Um, I think that's I think that's um, you know, that's a challenge for a building a large marketplace business because it's usually around getting the critical mass and the traction early on. But at the same time, I think it's a positive thing for um, Australian startups to have that real focus um, on making sure that there's they've got a solid revenue base. It's not just about eyeballs. And this is this is an interesting thing because when we were talking to Tim Fung, who's now on your board, he's mm-hmm. sort of had to make the same decision at Airtasker. I asked him whether he was going to go international. It's like actually the market in Australia is large enough. And how do mm. you feel about that when you're growing? Do you have your eyes focused on just staying in Australia or because I know you also did some work in Singapore. Are you still in Singapore? No, we're not. Uh, I mean, we had drivers that were kind of using the app, but we really didn't have any serious um, uptake. I mean, we weren't marketing to consumers up there. Uh, so it was more of a, a test run to understand the market when we went up there. Uh, answer is no. In the immediate term, we are very focused on the Australian market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a large lucrative market. We want to make sure that we're in a strong position in this market. And I actually think this is very important to be focused on um, 
having depth in a, in one market before looking to expand into overseas markets. Um, we have uh, SquarePeg is one of our shareholders, Paul Bassett, who um, set up uh, Seek, one of the co-founders of Seek. Um, you know, spoken at length and had a strong view because similar experience with Seek that um, it wasn't until I believe it was about eight or nine years in that Seek went into overseas markets. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of similarities um, between that business and ours in terms of building a, a large domestic marketplace. Mm. And uh, our absolute focus is make sure that we're in a strong position in this market first. And you're also, um, both of you are very much services that everyone would use. This is the difference, as is Airtasker, that they have a very broad base of potential users as opposed to something that is so narrow that you really do immediately have to go overseas because you'll never be able to get any traction unless you actually start looking at other markets. Yeah, look, and I think I've I've seen some great businesses based out of Sydney that are um, global focused. Um, You know, for example, Canva, I think, is doing an amazing job. Um, They hit their one millionth um, registered user recently. It's a great milestone and they're getting some great traction. um, Another great Sydney-based startup, CoinArch, that uh, is a Bitcoin um, trading platform, Um, they're pick up enormous amount of traction over in the US and European markets. I think for those kind of businesses, that's great. Like, And, you know, we want to see those kind of big success stories. But yeah. it just comes down to the nature of your business. I mean, our business is very much about having a presence on the ground yes. um, and, you know, make sure that we're executing um, very well in marketing to drivers and passengers here. It's just the very nature of the market as the business that we need to focus here. How much do you want to talk about what your revenues are like right now? Look, um, you know, our focus has been on building the critical mass of users mm. and uh, the volume of completed jobs. So our revenue is modest, but uh, we have a very clear path towards um, modifying the pricing structure so that's translating through to more significant revenue. So basically, do you take a percentage of the payment that passes through... Is that is that your the revenue model? We have two two revenue streams. We make a margin on the payment surcharge, so we charge a five percent surcharge on the payments through the app, um, and the other one is charging essentially charging the drivers a commission to access the high value jobs. So we know what the size of the fare is, um, so we can estimate what the fare, and then we'll charge the driver um, up to ten percent. It varies. Um, we've charged less for the smaller fares, right. um, but the higher value jobs will charge up to ten percent. And In order to encourage good behavior, essentially, you would give drivers who have higher ratings access, better access to the higher fare jobs, correct? That's right. So we've got this um, GoPoint system, which has worked really well. Um, So we rank the drivers in terms of bronze, silver, um, gold, platinum. And we give the platinum drivers um, priority access to the better jobs. So that's, you know, it's like carrot and stick. I mean, the behavioral element of um, the market that we're in, and yeah. um, it's really important uh, getting the right behavioral changes um, and getting the right outcomes in the drivers. So the GoPoint system has worked really well in incentivizing drivers to do the right thing, pick up the small affairs, yeah. and also penalizing them if they do the wrong thing. Right. So well. it's, I mean, it's a real case where gamification is producing behavioral change in the marketplace and producing a much better customer experience. It is. And look, I, I'm big proponent. I think gamification, from seeing from our experience with how it moved our conversion rate, uh, I think it was very effective and I would definitely encourage other startups to look at how they can integrate it into their apps. All right. So the competitive landscape here in Australia, there's essentially three players now. There's you, GoCatch, there's CabCharge, and there's Ingogo, right? And you're sort of all trying to get the same thing. How do you think that's going to play out over the next couple of years? Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we look in GoGo has got quite a different business model to us. Uh, they're very focused on processing card present transactions. So um, when you pull out your card 
physically pull out your card and um, run it through a payments terminal. Um, so then really nowhere to be seen in terms of bookings. We're seeing very um, low volumes of bookings that they're originating, um, which is a space that we're focused on. We, we see that as being further up the food chain, um, essentially, with the drivers and delivering more value to the drivers. So I got a little story for you. I was taking a taxi home from the airport a few weeks ago and was driving with the driver and he had two smartphones plastered on his windscreen. Yep. One was running in GoGo and one was running GoCatch. And I was like, so which one do you use more? He pointed to GoCatch. He's like, I really like this one. I almost never use that one. Yeah. So I think in terms of the relationship to the driver, uh, that's that's the thing that you clearly have established. Whereas in GoGo, if they're just working in payments, it sounds more like they're trying to disrupt cab charge then. That's right. Yeah. It's more direct in that payments terminal pay, which we see um, diminishing margins in that market. And that's why we d- we weren't interested in focusing on that um, early on. It's particularly with a move to 5% um, surcharge, including GST. Right. Um, and you know, in GoGo is still Paying out commissions to drivers, two and a half percent in Victoria. We, we just we can't see it sustainable at all. Um, so there's much more margins to be made in um, originating the bookings. So that's our focus now. Look, um, there's going to be a big battle in terms of who can get the greatest market share around this. I think there's going to be room for a few players. Um, I mean, is that what some of that five million dollars is going to get used? for and really very, help drive that? Very focused on growth, yeah. So uh, looking at, I mean, we'll continue to um, make changes to the product, um, which will help drive that growth, but also marketing, you know, getting our brand out there in a much bigger way and mm. um, and creating a lot more awareness of, of our business. So I'm, I'm going to see Go Catch ads probably on the subway and things like that so that people know to download the app and start using it. Well, yeah, I mean, it was... Um, we will be very targeted uh, around our marketing spend. So, you know, I actually, I really love a lot of the kind of guerrilla style marketing that uh, a lot of startups do. I think I think um, larger companies have a lot to learn from startups around um, actual effective marketing spend. So um, we'll, be, um, we'll be spending it in a very smart way where we get the greatest return. Excellent. Ned, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. One of the most interesting things to happen in technology over the last five years has been the rise of digital currencies. And of course, the first digital currency everyone thinks about, if you've heard about digital currencies, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is essentially a type of mathematics that can also be used as a commodity or a currency. And it's now starting to transform finance. So our next guest is Ronald Tucker from BitTrade Australia. Ronald, tell us what BitTrade Australia does and what it does with Bitcoin. Well, Mark, thank you very much for having me. Sincerely appreciate it. BitTrade Australia is one of Australia's leading Bitcoin uh, currency providers. So we allow folks to buy and sell Bitcoin through our website. So I can give you Australian dollars and you can give me... Uh, you have to use a wallet, sort of this thing to store them. You can give me Bitcoins that I can then store in a wallet. That's correct. So you place your order on our website. Right. Uh, You tell us how much Bitcoin you'd like to buy. Right. You either make a cash deposit at one of our banking partners, Mm -hmm. or you can send funds via EFT through your bank account. Mm -hmm. And once we see those funds have arrived in our account within four hours, you'll receive Bitcoin to your nominated Bitcoin wallet address. So it's it's as if um, I go up to a window in a bank and say, hi, I'd like to buy Bitcoins. I hand them some money and they give me some Bitcoins back. That's correct, yes. Or not unlike a fixed currency exchange that you might find at the airport or in shopping centers on the street. You want to exchange one form of currency for another. Uh, we do the same thing except uh, with Bitcoin, which is the world's first essentially truly global currency. 
Okay, so now I've got some bitcoins. What am I going to do with those bitcoins? Well, as you mentioned, bitcoins, Bitcoin, the protocol, the network, uh, essentially acts as, as three different instruments. One, it is a currency. Mm. Uh, two, it's a payment processing network, not unlike Visa or Swift uh, and or PayPal, for that matter. Uh, and that that payment processing aspect, we should stop and explain. That's sure baked into what Bitcoin is, mm. right? Because of the way Bitcoin works, the ability to be able to process Bitcoin payments is just, it's part of it. You don't have to add that on. It's just part of what Bitcoin is. That's correct. Exactly. And uh, it's, it's, it's a remarkable technology. I mean, it allows us to do things that we haven't been able to do in the finance world before. Uh, previously, if you, if you needed to send funds overseas, perhaps mm-hmm. you've got somebody traveling overseas and, and, uh, and, and they need a few hundred bucks, you'd have to go to Western Union right. uh, and uh, use a network like that. Or you might do a bank transfer, which could take three to four days to right. sort of settle. And uh, they'll charge their fees anywhere from nine to 15%. With this technology, it allows you to do it in three to four minutes. It's pretty much instant and uh, can be done for almost nothing or, or fees much, much lower than what uh, have conventionally been paid. So do you have people using Bitroid Bitcoins for that right now? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we have a number of, of customers who, who are uh, what we call niche remitters. So, for example, there's uh, $670 million worth of uh, funds are transferred from Australia, the, the Filipino expat community, back to the Philippines every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, they would do that uh, mostly through Western Union. But uh, with, with the rise of Bitcoin, uh, how quickly it settles and, and uh, it's low cost, it's actually overtaken Western Union in just the last few months. If I'm in the Philippines and I get Bitcoins, how do I turn those into, I don't know what the native currency in the Philippines is, is it the peso? Peso, that's okay. correct, yeah. How do I turn those into Philippine pesos once I'm in the Philippines? Sure. Well, you'd find you'd find a Bitcoin provider such uh, a Is that going to be easy to do in the Philippines? I mean, I can see it maybe being easy to do over here, but is it easy to do over It there? is, actually. The Philippines is, is one of the more unbanked countries. They say less than 30% of Filipinos have bank accounts. Right. But when you have uh, businesses uh, and uh, SMEs that are seeing the opportunities within Bitcoin uh, and, and developing technologies to allow the facilitation, such as ATMs, um, uh, which is is primarily what we're seeing used in the Philippines are companies that are Bitcoin ATMs, and uh, uh, they allow you to to take cash out. Right. Now, now that was with some of the early uh, foresighted businesses popping up, but today, over the last, I mean, it's been eighteen months. Just in the last few months, we're now starting to see the more traditional end of the financial sector take note. So, for example, we've been contacted by a, a couple of banks uh, in Asia, including the Philippines, where they're interested in, in providing a liquidity service for us. So, f- is this because right now they are making margin on all of those transfers? Well, they're, they're, that's right. Even these banks still need to go through an international broker usually right. to facilitate it, and they're they're getting charged their fees. And of course, if it on top of the fees they're already paying, if it takes three to four days to settle and the currency value is fluctuating, right. they could very easily lose those margins over the weekend. So I know that that was one of the concerns of a bank we're dealing with, is that the market's shut uh, through the weekend, mm. and by the time they come out the other end, they could have lost anything that they would have made. Do it through Bitcoin, through BitTrade. You can do it in three to four minutes and uh, you don't lose anything. So I'm actually, I'm a little bit blown away by this stat that you quoted that, in fact, the Bitcoin cash flow into the Philippines has surpassed Western Union, which has been around for, what, probably 100 years. Is- That's right. Well, it's actually what it is, is is daily transactional volume of Bitcoins, right. movement of Bitcoins has now surpassed that of Western Union globally. 
Okay, but that, but, but not all those bitcoins are being used as remittance. No, that way. no, but the ones that are going into the Philippines. That's right. Presumably are. This is correct. And so you've actually now had just over the last couple of months a fundamental displacement, a fundamental disruption mm. of remittances to the Philippines. And I haven't actually seen that report anywhere. That's actually a fairly big thing, isn't it? It, it is. It's, it's fascinating. Um, but uh, as you've mentioned, look, you've used the word digital disruption, banking disruption. Mm. Here it is. We, we, it's what Bitcoin represents is, is not unlike what email represented to the Postal Service 20 years ago. So I was literally 20 minutes ago having a conversation with someone who said that Bitcoin is a solution looking for a problem. Mm. And what you've just said is that actually, no, we found the problem. Mm. We've solved it. And there's going to be more areas around here, in which case, really, everyone who's saying that Bitcoin is the is the pro- solution we're looking for a problem is actually not looking in the right spot because there are these areas where it's already solving problems. This is, this is absolutely true. And again, I think it's a matter of raising awareness. And it's uh, something that BitTrade has been able to do through through the peak industry body that was established earlier this year in Australia called the Australian Digital Currency Commerce Association. And uh, we're able to address some of this and, and highlight uh, just where the opportunities lie for for business, both domestically and abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about niche remittances. And, and there are actually you know en- endless uh, opportunities here. But um, apart from niche remittances, there's also what they call FX remittances. Uh, Australia sends a lot of iron ore over to China. It's credited right. for helping keep the keep us afloat during the GFC. But for example, uh, on, on the bigger remittances end, um, these these uh, uh, mines and the buyers in China are paying four and a half billion dollars a year just to move iron ore and transaction fees. They're being charged nine percent. Again, it takes three to four days. Through so there so if they're paying BHP or Rio Tinto exactly. or right. uh, or um, Ziggy Forest whatever it might be they're paying nine percent to be able to actually just send them that's money. right over the course of a year and and that that amounts to four and a half billion dollars in transaction fees and again it takes three to four days they face the same considerations of uh, transactional fluctuations uh, currency fluctuations so, so is that going to start moving into Bitcoin has it started moving into Bitcoin the, some doors are being knocked on by by the incumbents in in the financial sector they're starting to realize just you know what this can actually mean for them and their customers Goldman Sachs predicts uh, a 200 million US dollar uh, a day savings by using the Bitcoin protocol, and uh, they're having a look. They're they're lifting the lid. So are a number of other major banks and uh, brokers. That's what's uh, is that sixty million sixty billion dollars a year or something like that? Uh, yes, that's correct. That's an enormous amount of money. Mm. That's an enormous industry. How far do you reckon that we are away from? that. Well, look, we've been on the front lines for the last 18 months. And in the early days, it was the tech savvy. It was more about um, uh, the uni students, uh, you know, in the basement meetups, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. GPO bar. Today, just over the last few weeks, we've seen it move into some of the corporate boardrooms around the country, into the law offices and and, uh, and reputable uh, uh Conventions being held, Digital Disruption X is coming up, we've got Payments Australian, we're seeing leaders from some of the biggest banks attend these things to talk about just what what, uh, this technology can do and and how it can benefit uh, all Australians. Um, And uh, look, I think as the world, as we see the rise of a a truly global economic community where, you know, for the first time, a a buck is going to be worth a buck anywhere, Bitcoin's worth a Bitcoin anywhere in the world. Well, yes, but a Bitcoin relative to any other currency is is always a moving target, right? It is. 
is volatile. It, it, it absolutely is. We've seen a, a, a great stabilization over the last several months. But I think if we start to think about what that could look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. it really will be a global economic community with a, a bit more of a singular currency potentially. And I guess what we're, we're looking to do, not just through BitTrade, but uh, through through, uh, through our association, uh, who, who works with other counterpart associations internationally, is we're looking to establish Australia as a leader regionally and, and potentially even globally. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. If I were starting a company today and I was in Sydney, I would immediately look to Fishburners because Fishburners is the best place to be a startup entrepreneur in the city of Sydney. This is where folks come. This is where the ideas happen. This is where the contacts get made that put you in touch with the resources that you need to be the best startup entrepreneur that you can. Find out more at fishburners.org. And we're back with Ronald Tucker of BitTrade. So, Ronald, what kind of business model is BitTrade doing? Are you basically taking a cut of all of these uh, transactions that pass through it? This is correct, yes. Yeah. So uh, we, we've been charging for the last 18 months a, a service fee, a transaction fee to to allow people to purchase or sell Bitcoins through us. Mm. Um, there are two ways to acquire Bitcoin. It's either mining dedicating some of your computer power to help uh, write the blockchain ledger, the Bitcoin protocol itself, uh, or you'd need to purchase it from somebody who has it, which is where BitTrade comes in. Uh, we charge, we've charge, we charged a uh, small service fee, and uh, as well, uh, we, we do trading on the markets, the commodity, the Bitcoin commodity markets, essentially. Do you do that trading for yourself, or do you do that trading uh, for your customers? Our focus has been operational trading, we call it, literally to fill the orders as we've gone. However, right. there's a great deal of opportunity on the day trading side as mm-hmm. well, and, and even beyond that we, we we've seen uh, half a dozen other key areas that uh, we'd be able to move into uh, that uh, would have been previously reserved for uh, the incumbents and, and traditional banking sector. For example, uh, we, we've just seen an announcement last weekend from Fedor Bank out of Germany, uh, partnering with Ripple Payments right. in California, uh, and uh, with a third partner, a Bitcoin company. They're creating the world's first digital currency bank. This is something we're paying close attention to. What is a digital currency bank? Through the Bitcoin protocol and digital currencies such as Bitcoin, uh, we're able to facilitate and uh, execute a number of the same uh, banking uh, facilities that traditional banks have been able to. Okay, so it's core banking, but done in Bitcoin. That's correct. All right. Okay, because core banking is a term that bankers use about the set of core features that a bank offers. Got you. All right. So this is the first example of that. So does that bank then immediately have an international presence because it's transacting in Bitcoin? It, It looks like that's the way it's shaping up. Uh, we'll, well, that's got to have the regulators going bananas. Yes. So these are the biggest, some of the issues that have, have, have been brought up uh, by the financial sector is, is how do we uh, develop a framework that, that suits this? Because uh, Bitcoin is something that crosses, as I said, three areas. It doesn't fit into any of the pre-existing boxes uh, under traditional government regulations. So something that we've been advocating along with uh, a number of our counterparts overseas has been uh, a self-regulatory model, an industry model uh, that uh, we would expect our our membership to abide by a set of best practices. When you see, say, the big four banks in Australia and they look at what's going on with that deal with Fedor Bank, do you think that they have any framework for understanding how they can either adapt their own operations or compete with that kind of operation? Mm. 
Look, I think there there are a number of very switched on and savvy people in these organizations, and I think uh, it is just a matter of time. And with the right dialogue, uh, we can develop ways to to work together and and to have all stakeholders come out on top. Mm-hmm. We have Australian banks punch well above their weight globally. We know we have a world leading financial services framework, and uh, the reality is, uh, for at least the next few decades, a couple of decades, uh, there's still going to be a need to turn every digital co- digital currency dollar into uh, fiat currency into into local. Uh, into local currency and this is where the banks if they're positioned correctly can uh you know this disruptive this banking disruption can be a lot less disruptive coming up so where do you see bit trade in all of the in the growing bitcoin ecosystem in australia right look uh we're, we're very thrilled we've had great success over the last 18 months uh it's a lot of promise and and we are working now to move into the wealth management uh, uh, segment of the market. We've had great reach out, particularly from the super sector, to our own surprise. We thought that that would be the last great holdout. But So this is not considered too risky for superannuation funds to invest in? I, I don't think so. I mean, look, you've always got to thoroughly do do a risk analysis of what where, where you're putting your money in, mm. in, in anything. However, attending the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees annual conference in September, the, the number that was thrown around the room was, was a little well, if you had 2% for highly speculative right. investment, then perhaps Bitcoin is something you want to consider. Right, which would be something around the order of, what, $20 billion or something? I think, uh, look, we, we spoke to a room of 140, and there was $1.3 trillion represented in that room. Yeah, so almost three, uh, $30, $30 billion would be 2% of that. That's that's correct, yeah. Right, which is a lot, and that's just in Australia. And that would then be to, and, uh, you know, what's the total dollar volume of all the Bitcoins in the world well, right, right now? Right now, there's $5.3 billion on the books. <laughs> so, so, in fact, there's more... More sort of fun money mm. in the Australian superannuation system that could be invested than there are total dollar volumes in Bitcoin. Well, right this now. is it. Yes. Yeah. What's going to happen uh, as Bitcoin finds more uses? I mean, as it now becomes this standardized currency for remittances. Mm. As it finds more and more uses, what does that do to the value of Bitcoins? Does that mean that Bitcoins will become more expensive or does it mean because they're going to become more commonly used that they become less expensive? It's purely market driven. So, uh, again, this is where it crosses that third area of of acting like a commodity or share trades on on exchanges around the world that are set up not on like the the traditional uh, exchanges, the ASX, the New York Stock Exchange, etc. So. You're basically going to be inviting now high high net worth individuals to uh, com- commodity trade in Bitcoin. Is that the right way to put it? Yeah, that's 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 one way to to, to, to look at it. Um, what what we noticed is, you know, as I said in the in the early days, it was tech savvy. But about six months later, so say December November last year, right. uh, we started getting a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls from mom and pops in the suburbs, but perhaps a little bit more savvy. They'd have a few houses in the portfolio mm. and they were self-managed super and, and they were looking to to make an investment in this and uh, even thinking of their kids and grandkids down the track. And mm-hmm. when we started tapping into that market, we started to realize what the direction of this thing was headed in. Now, as I said, the last few weeks, it started to hit a bit of a fever pitch. We're seeing a lot of investment put into other Bitcoin companies around the world, 15, 25, 30, 40 million dollars. Um, are 
you raising money for Bitrade right now? Bitrade is now just in the process of, of uh, uh, Series A funding. Seeking so how, how, how are you going to do, are you going to treat yourself as a technology company or are you going to treat yourself more as um, an investment vehicle? Because that's, I, I guess that's part of the roadshow that you're doing when you're talking to investors. True, but the, the reality is you just can't have one without the other. I mm. think it's important to put as much of a, an emphasis on, on both ends of it. Um, uh, and 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 we'll see. But look, uh, the next step now is truly into the wealth management space, mm-hmm. as that's that's where we're getting the most uh, requests and, and call uh, for assistance. There are other areas as well. Uh, we've got about half a dozen uh, um, channels that we'll be pursuing. How many are how many employees does Betrayed have right now? It has twelve. Okay, and, and you've been in operation eighteen months. That's correct. April twenty thirteen. You want to talk about your revenues at all? I would be pleased to. Uh, look, it's uh, what I can tell you is it's. Um, it's in the tens of millions. Uh, the turnaround on that is about 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say operational trading uh, is about 7.5%, and our fees work out to about 3%. So it's very, very promising. Right. And now with the investment banking community starting to take notice and uh, the higher net worth individuals uh, seeing what promise lies in this, right. uh, we do need to continue to develop our infrastructure and roll out internationally. How, um, in terms of the trading growth month on month, do you want to talk about that? Like, Are there, are there more Bitcoins being traded through? Betrayed yes, every month. It is continually increasing. We've done, uh, I think, uh, off the top of my head, uh, end of August, we had done 23,000 transactions in, in the time that we'd been in operation, which represents 0.1% of, of the Australian population. Mm-hmm. Now, if we've turned over the numbers we have on that and generated the revenues that we have, uh, imagine when we more fully step out into uh, the greater economy uh, and uh, and internationally as well. It's there to be had, and this is what we're excited about and, and uh, seeking. Well, how is uh how is a mom and pop self-funded super going to find out about Bitrate? I mean, how are you actually going to be able to communicate with them that you exist? Right. Well, look, we've we've had, as I said, tremendous results, and and uh, that's just been through uh, Google advertising and mm-hmm. essentially word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of the results that we've built and and the trust and the reputation we've built in the community. Um, but uh, to, to step forward next, we do want to start to engage the uh, traditional media channels right. more. Uh, are, we have. are you worried that either the big four or a Macquarie Bank are going to step in and try to sort of scoop up most of this market by offering those services themselves? Look, I, I, there were concerns around that in the early days. Change is always difficult. But uh, but as I've said, there has been, uh, you know, a great deal of foresight by some some of the some of the banks and, and the people out there. Uh, it's but it's been a matter of, of having to you know comply with with uh, best practice, mm-hmm. uh, anti money laundering mm-hmm. uh, standards, um, risk management, etc. And we've put a lot of resources and effort into that to make sure we're in line with uh, what is required under legislation, uh, and continuing to work with government and, and legislators and the departments uh, through through the industry association of which we're part of ADCA, and that's had great success. So in five years' time, is Bitcoin going to be considered pretty much a very bog standard part of any self-managed portfolio? Absolutely. I believe so. Now, whether it goes by the title of Bitcoin itself, what we're really talking about is the blockchain technology. Uh, There are 106 digital currencies out there. Bitcoin has 96% of the market share, uh, but it's the underlying vehicle that drives it. And we call that uh, 
the blockchain. And um, yes, this is this is here to say. Last week we, we saw an announcement from IBM who, who who is moving into this. We've seen the adoption by the likes of Dell Computers, uh, Expedia.com, the world's largest travel agency. Uh, we've got uh, Google, eBay, PayPal looking to to adopt and integrate. Just um, a couple of months ago, we had George Osborne. He's the uh, chancellor of the UK Exchequer, the head of their central bank. Essentially, he stepped out and said, "We need to bring Bitcoin into the tent." in order to ensure London remains the centre of the financial universe. And we've seen a continued movement, the digital economy minister uh, last week, coming out with further plans as to how to make sure that uh, London remains at the head of the table. Um, and again, this is something that BitTrade, and uh, through its uh, association of which it's a part of ADCA, is, is looking to ensure Australia's seat at the table as well. Ronald Tucker, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Mark, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Things happen so fast in the startup space. In our first episode, Ian Gardner told us just how difficult it was to issue stock options in Australian startups. But just in the last couple of weeks, the government has signaled big changes starting from July 2015, which will basically make it the same as it is in America to issue stock options. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be joined by lawyer Raina Lee Shannon, and she will sit down and explain to us how stock options will work in Australia going forward. In addition, we've also just launched a Tumblr blog with lots of behind-the-scene photos from this podcast, links to the SoundCloud and YouTube. If you want to visit it, go to twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Once again, that's twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to Murray Herps and Fishburners for their support to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for their most excellent audio production. Thanks again to Ned Moorfield of GoCatch and Ronald Tucker of Bittrade. Both of them cleared time in their schedule at their last minute to come in. I'll speak to you again in a fortnight when we'll be doing a special episode covering the latest news affecting startup entrepreneurs in Australia. For now, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.